0: Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. This episode of Starving for Darkness is brought to you by Keystone. If you are a distributor or a contractor, go to keystonetech.com, keystonetech.com. Keystone is dedicated to making dark sky friendly lighting products like the X-Fit full cutoff wall pack, or their high performance LED area lights, which are dark sky friendly, eliminating unnecessary sky glow. The Type 3 Optic Package conveniently includes an adjustable pole mount kit and a 3-pin twist-lock photocell and a shorting cap to cover all your needs and variables. And visit KeystoneTech.com for all your other lighting needs, sign solutions, emergency backup, transformers, and of course LED retrofit kits and fixtures. Keystone has it all. Keystone. Light made easy.
1: Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, and I'm so pleased to have Dr. Meredith Kernbach on the show today. Dr. Kernbach is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg in the lab of Dr. Maya Breitbart. Meredith earned her bachelor's degree in biological sciences in global health from the University of South Florida. And for her doctoral dissertation, she studied how light pollution may affect zoonotic disease dynamics, specifically West Nile virus in house sparrows. Today she's working on examining virus and protist infection of tropical seagrasses, We have so much to talk about today, but before we get into all of your amazing research, Meredith, I want to ask you if you have a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe.
2: Wow, well, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, the last time I had a really cool dark sky experience was when I was um, traveling in Alaska. Um, And because, you know, it's not so developed there, you've got some like really awesome. Dark sky experiences, of course, not in the dead of summer because it doesn't really get that dark there. (laughs) But um, yeah, no, it was absolutely amazing up there, just seeing
1: pristine skies and 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 undeveloped land. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, Alaska is such an interesting place because the natural daylight cycle is so very different there, um, and it's often i i always talk about the natural daylight cycle as this rosetta stone but that uh, and when you're in those northern regions it really it changes how all life adapts to very different a uh, uh, feeling of the natural daylight cycle so that's something i think maybe we should actually tackle on the show so you're reminding me of that very interesting topic so <clears throat> your research um you study the pathogens or the pathway of of disease and you started out studying birds and you also are the recipient of a very prestigious award, the AOS, uh, the an AOS grant. So congratulations on that. Um, <laughs> Thank can you. you. Can you talk about your research with birds and what you've been finding with regards to light pollution? Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um... Just to kind of give you sort of an overview of what we found is um, historically, um, the lab that I did my doctor in studied how stressors affect the ability of birds or other organisms to kind of cope with infection. And so light pollution now being one of those stressors Um, We found that, like, house sparrows, which are small brown birds that are pretty pervasive throughout all parts of the world. They're on almost every continent except for Antarctica. Um, And you could probably walk outside of where you're at right now and find some house sparrows. Um, So we know these birds are probably exposed to variable amounts of light pollution in nature. And they also harbor West Nile virus naturally in nature, which means that they can become infected with West Nile virus and kind of pass it on to either other house sparrows or birds or even people um, naturally in in nature by a mosquito biting a house sparrow and then going on to bite another host. Um, So it made a really good study species asking what happens when birds are exposed to light pollution and what does it mean for transmitting disease. And so we found that um when house sparrows are exposed to relatively low levels of light at night we tested um between 7 and 5 lux um throughout our experiments and just to kind of give you an idea of what that would look like in nature it would be like maybe a dimly lit uh street lamp um not like mm-hmm. directly close to it but you know like say you're in a tree nearby or or something Um, and that birds um, were able to hold infectious levels of West Nile virus for longer periods of time. And so what that means for disease transmission is that because they have higher amounts of West Nile virus in circulation, they can pass it on to more mosquitoes that are biting them for a longer period of time. And what was interesting in that study is that we found no differences in mortality rate. So even though these birds were technically getting sicker, they weren't Dying any faster. And so it just amplifies the possibility for disease transmission from these birds that are exposed to light pollution. We also found um, in some of these initial studies that um, a bunch of different uh, immune pathways were affected um, by exposure Mm -hmm. to light at night. So um, some responses. viral replication usually the host will do this thing called apoptosis where they kill infected cells to prevent the location of virus in them right so it's like almost like a kamikaze mission to just like kind of kill the cells that the host has to prevent the virus from spreading throughout the body but because these birds kind of showed pathways of like uh, more inflammation and and greater pathogen-induced damage, they inhibited their apoptosis responses just to kind of prevent further damage. And it probably in an effort of doing that, they enabled the virus to live in them for longer, which is really interesting. Um, and then some further studies we did um, just to kind of follow up on that study that was done using incandescent light at night um, so mm-hmm. I also tested a bunch of different LEDs, like some some cool white LEDs, some warm white LEDs, um, and then like sort of what might be, which is a, I'm sure a touchy topic um, in the lighting industry, but what might be wildlife safe lighting, which is like sort of an orangey amber hue. You might see some of these like along the beaches, in Florida, especially because of the sea turtles. Um, but so we found um, there wasn't too much of a significant difference between um, these different lighting types in their ability to combat West Nile virus, except for that amber-hued, like these wildlife-safe lighting-exposed birds actually had lower virus throughout the course of infection in control birds, which is really interesting. And we can go into theory about that later, but I was not expecting that at all. that birds that were exposed to the cool white LEDs are actually dying faster. Um, So this kind of goes along with our Mm. theory that Mm. they're incurring a lot more pathogen-induced damage. They're not coping with infection very well. Um, And so although we didn't see this sort of effect um, when they're exposed to incandescent light at night before, uh, we definitely saw it in this scenario. So again, interesting. Um, And another thing to note is that we conducted one of our experiments in the spring and one of the experiments in the fall, which generally, you know, same Mm -hmm. relative temperature, different life history stages for these birds. But it's really interesting Mm -hmm. because West Nile virus definitely has like seasonal variation in when it's transmitted. So that could also come into play. We might have picked up some juveniles in the fall that like we would be older in the spring if they had fledged like late spring. Um, so something to consider when thinking about the results of what we found. And then, um, the most recent thing that we did was, oh, sorry. <laughs>
1: It, did you go have on. I have many questions, but <laughs> do go on. Yes. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> um, but basically, yeah.
2: So the most recent thing we found is we use um, what's called sentinel chicken um, data, which is basically a system that the state of Florida uses to kind of detect disease circulation in these areas before it's, over to people. So we get sometimes like asymptomatic donor positives of West Nile virus and stuff like that, like from like blood donors and stuff like that. Um, but another way that we can conduct surveillance is to test these chickens that are out in like these little chicken coops, they're out with the mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. And when you get uh, a chicken that is positive for antibodies to West Nile virus, or other viruses that are circulating in Florida, you know that West Nile virus is in this place because these chickens were just exposed to it. You test them either once a week, twice a month. So you have this timeline of like when West Nile virus appeared in this place. And what we can also Mm -hmm. do is because we have the GPS coordinates of these Sentinel chicken sites is we can figure out what the light pollution intensity is in these areas. So not so much a local level of light pollution, but we can use satellite derived measures of light pollution in these areas to see if there's a correlation between west nile virus emergence and light pollution intensity and what we found was that light pollution was actually one of the best predictors of west nile virus emergence and we even used proxies of urbanization we counted follation density, we accounted for impervious surface, which is like concrete cutter. So basically it's another proxy for like how developed an area is. Um, And then we accounted for a bunch of other things like temperature and rainfall, because in order to have West Nile virus transmission, you have to have mosquitoes. And in order to have mosquitoes, you have to have at least a little bit of rainfall so that they can breed Mm -hmm. and then mosquitoes emerge. Right. So we accounted for a bunch of these other factors and light pollution still came out as like one of the most important things
0: Um,
2: and and such that. West Nile virus cases or exposures in terms of sentinel chicken positives was highest in like low to intermediate areas of light pollution. So it's kind of like the yeah. bell curve, right? So it, we kind of predicted it would be highest so at like mid levels, but it was a little mm-hmm. bit lower than mm-hmm. we expected. Um, but again, so much work has to be done on this, but we really just don't know what's driving like lower West Nile virus risk at higher light pollution levels, and then in completely dark places. So you have to have all of these different things happen in a perfect way so that there's enough mosquitoes that are maybe attracted to light, but the light isn't too bright that it, you know, kills all of the house sparrows or the other birds that are infected with it. So there's got to be some sort of balance between all of the things that influence disease emergence but it was really interesting and it was the first type of study that's ever been done on light pollution like this with disease so i think there's a lot of work that has to be done still but
1: that's where we're at now (laughs) wow so i have to say uh i'm disappointed by your research findings but not surprised um you know i hadn't even thought so far down to think of disease transmission as being another aspect of light pollution. Um, And I wanna jump to, I wanna read part of your abstract that um, from the paper, Effect of Light Pollution Across Diverse Natural Systems. You say, light pollution, you and your team say, light pollution or the presence of artificial light at night is among the fastest growing but least understood anthropogenic stressors on the planet While historically light pollution has not received attention comparable to climate change or chemical pollution, research over the past several decades has revealed that a plethora of negative effects on humans, animals, and supporting ecosystems. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for saying that. I I <laughs> I often I often say light pollution is the snake in the grass of climate change that yes. no one's paying attention to. And I think that not only is it impacting ecosystems in ways that we have no idea that could actually cascade out of control, but I also think it's affecting humans, human health, and our own mindfulness and meditation practices because we've ripped out an entire aspect of Uh, reflection that happened on a nightly basis, which makes us worse designers and worse scientists. So I feel like we are not paying attention to this one aspect. So thank you for jumping the gun and saying that immediately, (laughs) that we need more voices. Um, I'm particularly interested in the fact that your research has uncovered that dim light is perhaps one of the most uh, impactful problems that we have. Um, because I feel like that's crepuscular light. That's the light of the changing day. That's when really systems start to really switch from day to night. So it's like a moment of confusion by keeping this light at this dim level. And I remember uh, doing um, uh, reading about research that said that part of the problem on human health with light pollution is that we get our internal body clocks, which we don't have just one, we have the super nucleus, which is the master clock, but our heart has its yep. own clock, our stomach has its own clock, our hormones have their own systems based on the time of day. So the problem is not that you could be off you know the the peak day it's that within our whole systems everything gets out of alignment then we get disease and 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 so your your stomach clock's not talking at the same timing as your heart clock or whatever so that's where we exactly. see it so when you talk about your work i'm seeing that we're getting things really twisted and out of balance and so i so what is it about the dim light do you think that is what are your thoughts on why the dim light it, versus the bright city lights, we're not seeing such a change. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Right. Well, I think, you know, the dim light, so many people can sleep at night with dim light versus like bright light. So it's right and perhaps something more tolerable. Um, but even even birds have really thin skulls. They can actually receive light cues through their head. It doesn't even have mm-hmm. to. You can blind a bird, and you can still get them to synchronize to light cues. So what's really interesting is that we are so sensitive to light cues, especially because, like you said, the the dim light is more of a crepuscular light mm-hmm. than, say, like a bright light, where, where you would might uh, confuse bright light for like a daytime versus a crepuscular period of lighting is it, a little bit different. I definitely think that, you know, not so much that that birds have a choice to tolerate it, but as people we choose dimmer lights at night because it, you don't wanna, you know, disturb yourself. You know, your 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 porch lights aren't floodlights illuminating the whole neighborhood. That's what we have a lot of is dim light. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's probably the most pervasive light that we see. And I think You know, uh, a lot of birds would probably avoid really bright light, whereas they might tolerate behaviorally low levels of light in some areas. Interesting. Behaviorally, I think it could definitely have an effect.
1: I heard that some birds or most birds don't have eyelids. Can you fact check that for me?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, they don't have like human eyelids, like their little eyes closed, but they're mm. like feather covered. <laughs> they got like, uh, yeah, and this is another interesting thing about like disease and birds is they've got like this gummy tissue sort of around their eye. And mosquitoes mm. like to feed off of that because it's not covered Ooh. by feathers. So Ooh. yeah, I actually had a textbook in grad school where there was a mosquito biting a bird like around the eye because it's exposed tissue. But
1: birds sort of have eyelids an okay <laughs> yeah well i so i i wrote an instagram post and by the way if anyone wants to follow meredith on instagram you are at blissful biology with an underscore at the end i just followed you this morning and wow. <laughs> yeah and and so um i actually wrote an instagram post with my hand holding a flashlight and actually what i was trying to show was that our hand is see-through and this was a tiny tiny flashlight so our own brains are probably see-through to the light of the immense power of the sun we are all see-through and so it's not some dark cavern inside my abdomen i'm sure that if standing out in the sun i would be glowing so there is an immense impact that happens on our paper thin bodies when you think about the comparison to the uh the brightness of the sun. And so let's talk exactly. about amber light now. So you're yeah. I actually had heard um from another scientist who actually studies fireflies that amber light actually kind of lasts longer that blue light dissipates more quickly so that was sort of a sad finding about amber light um, that it kind of sticks around to create impact versus blue light is sort of escaping more quickly i don't know if i'm describing it well enough but that was the gist But I'm happy to hear you say that amber light did have a reduced impact. So I'd love to hear all of your thoughts about amber light. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, I think so uh, at an individual level, I think amber light is probably way better for birds because we found that they had less, less virus um, and they didn't die as quickly, um, But what's hard is when you think about, which is sad, in terms of disease, is the quicker individuals die while they're infectious, the less important they are for subsequent transmission, because they're taken out of the equation, you have less infectious birds, right? And so what's hard is... Yes, the blue light was healthier for their survival, but amber light could also amplify the effects of West virus that we see just because it allows these birds to survive for longer, which again, is a really morbid way to picture it. But when thinking about the consequences for spillover and transmission, I'm not comfortable recommending Amber light at this point, just because there wow. is certainly opportunity for it to actually make things worse in an effort for us. Like yeah. it, we intended to make things better by putting out Amber lights, which they do help. Absolutely. Like if you have Amber lights along your beaches and uh, outside of your house, Amber light has less effects on people. It definitely has uh, less consequences for birds in terms of pathogen induced damage so far of what we've seen, but I I wouldn't, you know, be a crusader for Amber light at this point, just because there's so much that we don't know yet about the effects that it has. And there's, I mean, Birds are really popular study species. Fireflies are really cool study species when it comes to light because they signal, you know, like they, they communicate with light. And so it's a really important thing to them, but mm-hmm. there are so many organisms in the environment we haven't even asked about yet. I'm, I'm reading, you know, some, some light pollution stuff about herps and anoles and stuff. That stuff is really cool. That stuff is newer. It's coming out, but I mean, gosh, there's just so many organisms in our environment that we could be affected with amber light and we just haven't studied them yet. And so it's hard to like make recommendations because like I I want so desperately to like for this to be a solution or like dim light to be a solution or to find Mm -hmm. a solution that is good for people and wildlife alike. But it's just hard to make conclusions about amber light at this point.
1: Well, I really appreciate you saying that. And um, I think it's so important to have people like you doing the the scientific research with the rigor that is involved. Um, I myself am a a citizen scientist and my hunch has long been that there's nothing to replace darkness and that we have to use the natural daylight cycle as our rosetta stone and so you know where you might try to design for one species because you have research backing it up because we maybe we studied the house sparrow but we have no idea about the frog for the insect and that we could have unintended consequences by over designing to one species. And so exactly. I, I think it's interesting that you're providing a caution for amber light because I know that there's people out there who want to just be like, OK, amber light, that's good. Let's run with it. Let's be done. Now exactly. it's a perfect solution. And it's really not. We don't have the research to back it up at all. So I think exactly. that's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> amber light uh has been billed also as being turtle friendly which also always bothers me because you know what's turtle friendly is the moon (laughs) Uh, um the moonlight is turtle friendly nothing that we could provide is friendly to them so um now the other thing is you said you were using satellites as predictors um, but that's also really interesting because satellites, I've recently heard, are not even capturing up to maybe 270% to 400% of the light pollution that's out there. So um, when, you, when you talk about the satellite, how do you account for the the satellites maybe being off because they're not even capturing the blue light?
2: Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, I tried to use the best thing available that we had at the time. We used... Um, world atlas of light pollution Mm -hmm. um and so it it's basically nothing is perfect at this point we don't have really anything that's like a great predictor at like a satellite level so using the best thing we had available you can kind of do comparisons. So like brighter areas versus dimmer areas. Granted, it doesn't account for all of the light pollution, we can still make relative assumptions of like, this place versus another place, this place is brighter than another place, even Mm -hmm. though you know, it may not seem that different. We probably aren't accounting for like you said, like, probably some of the blue light Um, A lot of variation at local levels. I mean, you've walked down a street at night before. It's like the levels of light pollution in that neighborhood are not consistent from like one street to another. But the resolution at which you're able to capture stuff at satellites may be able, you know, you may be able to make a conclusion still, even though it's not capturing all the light pollution. This neighborhood is brighter than this neighborhood based on sort of you know whatever resolution you're using or can capture i think moving forward we definitely need a better system to characterize light pollution from either space or remote sensing um also a lot of people including myself uh, are using lux and we're Mm -hmm. kind of learning that that's not the best uh unit of measure for light to be able to tell, you know, like light's properties and how other organisms perceive light, like mm. me and you would be able to tell pretty easily what five lux from sixty lux is. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't really tell too much about the light itself. Um, and so, using um, the other parameters that satellites give you um, might be a bit more useful just, just to look at things at like a broader scale. Um, yeah. No, I, I definitely agree with you that it's not perfect. Um, there's there's a lot of room for improvement, but there's a large need for it. Um, another um, member of my lab at one point was really interested in looking at malaria data, um, sort of at like a large scale. Um, but it, it's really hard because like getting the resolution of light pollution at the same resolution of like malaria data is kind of hard. Um, yes. So yeah there's a need for it though because there's a lot of studies that you can use sort of this metadata that other people have collected over years and ask about light pollution now so that's that's a cool opportunity but room for improvement
1: well i i think my point is more to say that you know you've you've said that in your research you're uncovering that light pollution is actually a driving factor in yeah. d- disease transmission. So it may be even more of a driving factor than we even realize since your your tool is not even capturing every single um, aspect of light pollution. Now, when you talk about lux Absolutely. not being the, uh, the best metric, I always say that part of the problem with um, light pollution and why it's so out of control is a lot of our decision makers don't know the difference between lux and a foot candle, nor a lumen or a candela. These are all different ways that we measure and experience light. So, what would you say are you, what's being left on the table when you only talk about lux? And what are satellites giving you that um, in terms of like a more clear picture?
2: Yeah. Um... To be completely honest, I am not the expert between all the different. Um,
1: That's okay. Like, units We're merging here or... and now. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Wow. Um, but from <laughs> right, I'm like, oh, um, <laughs> not trying to trap say... you. <laughs> <laughs> not trying to trap you. The point of this well...
1: podcast is to generate conversations in the gaps between Absolutely. all of our knowledge. Because what you talk about is that this is uh, light pollution is a problem that has crossed into boundaries of ecosystems exactly. and also boundaries of human knowledge. So I I actually am very uh, I I love the knowledge that you have about l- the lighting industry already coming in as a scientist. And quite frankly, I don't think the lighting industry is doing its job to bring in the science. So. My great hope for a podcast like this is to draw a conversation that's wider than the silos. So there's no trap in my question at all. But (laughs) I'm just wondering what you're finding in your use of this metric that isn't useful to you or what you think could be better. Yeah, well, I think um, so we have this, which
2: I don't really know that there's a direct solution for it at this point, but we have this preconceived notion that every animal perceives light the same way that we do. And so when I look at things in Lux, you know, it might not be as relevant or the same to say like a lab rat or a bird. And so when I'm measuring things in units of Lux, I'm not exactly sure what that means to the bird, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think, you know, like considering animal perception of light when choosing units or choosing different bulbs to test is, is more useful than say like my perception of like warm versus cool. Like that is really relevant because people will go out to the store and buy warm versus cool bulbs. That's a that's a decision you make in the island target so it's certainly relevant to the birds that nest right outside of my house because yes. i'm using warm versus cool bulbs so it makes sense in branching the lighting industry and the consumers of light bulbs to wildlife health because you know it's it's what me and you think about when we think about like light intensity and we go buy bulbs but there's certainly other things that people who are like really good at like biomechanics of like eyesight in different animals would argue that we're not doing it well enough to account for. And um, I, I, I love that you're doing this podcast because I would love to hear from other people who use units other than Lux to kind of mm-hmm. describe like brightness and stuff like that and sort of how we can integrate it in our science moving forward.
1: Well, I think what's so interesting is that the lighting industry actually, uh, when we talk about warm light or cool light, uh, it's not sufficient because in a warm light, you can actually have peaks of blue. And one warm light could be very different without, than another warm light without peaks of blue. So the lighting industry exactly. has now come up with a new metric. Uh, it's called tm uh, 3015, I believe, and it's much more comprehensive. It talks about the saturation, the color, et cetera, but it's not consumer friendly because it's so complicated. So we're kind of in a pickle uh, because we're not really delivering full information to consumers. That is a way of understanding Um, what I would hope. And there's definitely people out there doing this research far more than I am, is that we just include the spectral content uh, on every single uh, lamp that's sold so that people can really understand, Okay, well, there is a lot of blue. And there's uh, some studies showing that um, when you have a smooth curve versus peaks uh, of spikes of, of different colors, actually, the color rendering is much better. So there's different ways of experiencing light and i love that you're thinking about this um in fact you you in general have a very compassionate approach towards the species that you're studying um on your instagram i think you're holding a cockatoo on your shoulder um <laughs> so uh-huh. i don't i wanted to ask because you were um, you also worked in a veterinarian office um and so yeah. you seem to have a really natural connection to animals Um, and so you're actually kind of transitioning from studying birds to seagrass, and I just want to ask about your connection, um, your more personal connection to the birds, um, and if there was any intuitive learning that came through that experience of, of just being aware of your species in a more maybe living thing to living thing way and also what it's like to transition into your work uh, in seagrass. And then I wanna talk about the light pollution that's happening and what you're seeing in the, the botany. So um, yeah, so tell me about your connection to birds in particular.
2: Well, so yeah, I used to wanna to be a veterinarian. I went into college with the intention that I was gonna like heal animals um, and I took like some but physiology classes. <laughs> exactly. Well, so I think through my lab, like, like intro to biology lab and like all of these labs that you get to experience in grad or not graduate school, but undergrad and like high school, like kind of building up to it is you learn uh, about like what makes an animal tick, right? Like, what do hormones, what role do hormones have in animals and stuff like that? And so, Granted, vets have a, an awesome job by getting the opportunity to see patients and heal patients and make a difference in like in animals or family with the animals' lives. You have the potential to actually change science for the vets mm-hmm. on the back end in grad school. And so, I had like a bunch of mentors that like really inspired me to pursue research because they were like, look at all of these. Cr- crazy thing uncovered about animals that nobody understood before and I felt like you know this was an opportunity I had to like really make a difference in science moving forward versus going to vet school which again it would have been amazing but I think I I really got the opportunity to like make a difference for like wildlife moving forward versus Mm -hmm. like maybe small animals and stuff like that. Um, I did take an ornithology class in college, which ended up Mm -hmm. being one of my favorite classes. There's so many interesting things about birds that like people don't. Don't know tell about, us. I mean like tell us yeah, well like there's like right like migratory restlessness there's just this thing in migratory birds where like in the spring they get this like restlessness so they have to migrate south, wow. and so they can literally use like magnetic compasses, star compasses, sun compasses, and they find their way back to this migratory spot for overwintering et cetera or or coming back in the spring or, or going south in the fall um and what's so crazy is they'll find their way back like to the exact same nest box they were using the year before after they've traveled to like Mexico. It's really insane. Like, as a human, I would never be able to do that without a GPS. (laughs) Yeah, But it's it's, it's mind-blowing some of these things that birds just like have the instincts to do, mm-hmm. which is so cool. So that's sort of how I you know, became interested in birds. I was interested in circannual rhythms and circadian rhythms, which kind of segued into light pollution. It's like, how does light change the way that birds perceive these things? Um, and, and because they use light for so many important things. I mean, they use day length to perceive time of year too. So like when you introduce light pollution, is like I, okay, is it the same season all year? Like h- how do we how do we time our breeding correctly? Which you can use temperature, rainfall, and a bunch of other things combined. But so it's really interesting to like really understand an animal and then look mm-hmm. at what's happening <laughs> in the world and being like what what does the future look like for these birds? Because we know North America has experienced incredible like declines of several bird species native bird species migratory bird species Uh, there's there's been like i i can't remember the exact percentage but it's like it's an ungodly amount
1: like like 30 percent or something it's a chunk really crazy
2: yeah Yeah. and like i'm sure you hear about like building collisions and like stuff like that it's like oh my gosh, like during migration the amount of birds that died by just like being attracted to light or reflective surfaces and flying into buildings and being entrapped mm-hmm. by light and stuff like that. So like it, the, the reason I became so passionate and wanted to study birds in the first place is you, you truly learn to understand how incredible they are as organisms. And then, and then we <laughs> take a look at what we've done to the world and we're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've done this to birds. <laughs>
1: I, so. <laughs> I know it's heartbreaking and I'm glad you mentioned that because I mean the, the the statistic I always say is there's a billion birds dying due to fatal flight into building each year. Um, and I think it's probably an underestimation of how many birds that we're losing. And I also had read that we've we've lost about a quarter of the population since the 70s, that the, the, the populations have declined. Uh, that could be off. In my exact numbers, but it is not a small amount. It is so sad. And and back yeah. to your um, driving factor of light pollution, you know, the, since the 70s, we have seen an uptick in light like we've never seen before. Uh, yeah. So it just, you know, the 90s with LEDs kind of coming in, in and especially maybe in the early 2000s, I mean, we're seeing light come into the ecosystems like we've never seen before so it's it's they're they're directly working uh in the same line um so so you're um so, okay, getting back to what we were talking about before, your love of birds yep. and that they're fascinating and that, you know, also that they migrate too, that they migrate with these the map of the stars to these precise locations. I actually had mourning doves nesting just below my window here Ooh. in Cambridge. It was so beautiful. I watched them fledge. I watched ah. the the parents. And this was really interesting to me because, you know, when you hear about birds, you think, That they're kind of robotic that they you know just eventually to get the guts and they fly out of the nest it was not robotic at all the parents actually um guided them and taught them they were jumping to a a, an electric line or a wire um, for a couple days before they fully fledged into a tree and there was this one point where a squirrel came and the squirrel was trying to get by on the electric wire and this was moments before the fledge happened and the 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 one of i think it was the dad the morning dove dad got really big the squirrel was freaked out he was really upset went in the opposite direction i watched this whole thing happen but my point is to say is that it was a very deliberate act of love the parents were definitely guiding these birds and that we so underestimate these more uh almost human feelings that happen in wildlife, that they're not robots, they're wise, they react, they have um, all these different stimulus that they're, they're reacting to. I hope that they come back to that same spot next year so I can watch them again. Um, but it's, I, when you talk about birds, I really do feel that you have an intimate connection, not only from a, you know a clinical science point of view, but that you also have another driving force of information, which I really, really appreciate. So what has it been like for you to switch from birds which have eyes and hearts and we can kind of relate to them? Um, and and recently someone called me out because I called plants uh, non-sentient. And um, there's now recent <laughs> studies that actually all of their sentience is in the root systems below and that we're just totally underestimating the intelligence of plants. So i take back non-sentient but you can't see their (laughs) eyes you can't feel their heart how has it been switching to such a wildly different species well i think
2: learning about plants has like been really eye-opening because there's so many cool things about them that like i didn't really even dig into in like my bachelor's degree when i was like fascinated with like you know vertebrates (laughs) um but like they have so many really cool capabilities like reproduce sexually and asexually and, you know, they they serve so many ecosystem services. What's really cool about seagrass specifically is that they play such a seminal role in their ecosystem. They stabilize the sediment, like protect basically the Florida coast from like absolutely collapsing when like a storm comes through because the roots will hold in place a lot of the coastline and they provide, you know, shelter for young fish or other organisms from predators they provide food to sea turtles and manatees so although they aren't a living breathing thing they provide a life to so many things in the bay Mm -hmm. and having lived in tampa now for like five years i've come to really appreciate you know like all of the wildlife here and how special it is you know not everybody in the world gets to see sea turtles you know swimming around in the bay and stuff and so granted the the seagrass themselves can't you know like they don't have personalities like birds do and stuff like that um their personality is giving life to all these other things that are really important. And so I have a new appreciation for like communities as a whole, rather than just birds, is all the things that kind of work together to create this really cool life-sustaining population in the Bays and give life to like manatees. I'm not sure if you are familiar with like a lot of the manatee deaths in Florida this year. Um, No. But a lot of it. we're we're on track to have a. Well, I think we already have broken the rep- record for a number of manatees found either dead or emaciated um, oh. this year, and it and it's it's been related to a loss of seagrasses.
1: So, oh my.
2: Granted, right. So, granted, seagrass themselves don't you know walk and talk. That they provide a livelihood for manatees, which are some of the. Most lovable sea creatures you can, you know, you can come across. So it it allows me to stay connected to like these really important and really cool animals in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm. And what are you finding? What are your findings with seagrass with regards to light pollution?
2: So I haven't been able to conduct um, really any studies with the seagrass so far um, with light pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been talking with some collaborators at fish and wildlife um services and stuff. Um, and and there's certainly an opportunity for light pollution to affect seagrasses, which is really interesting because now it's not just uh light as a cube, but it's light as a resource. It's light because they provide, mm-hmm. you know, an opportunity for photosynthesis. And so while you know constant light exposure could definitely be detrimental to seagrasses you know, they might be drawn to places with more light because they have an opportunity to, you know, like uh, produce, produce more energy by being exposed to more light. And so some of the places might actually have more seagrass. But what is really important when you think about like seagrass as like a keystone, like foundational species yes. is that everything that depends on the seagrass could be drawn to wherever the seagrass decides to flourish. And so while maybe the seagrass themselves may not be incurring, you know, which I could be completely wrong about. I have no idea if light pollution could be like altering immune responses in seagrasses and stuff like that. But now all of the animals that reside near the seagrasses could be exposed to light pollution as a secondary result of Seagrasses establishing in brightly illuminated places. Um, yeah, there's there's so many different things that could be happening. I also was um, reading a little bit of literature about um, how seagrasses actually sequester like a ton of carbon, like way more than even terrestrial forests, which is really interesting. Wow. So they basically serve wow. as a buffer in oceans from acidification and stuff like that. Um, and supposedly there's you know there's never completely agreeing results but there's a potential for these seagrasses to actually store more carbon at night during dark cycles and so if you're constantly exposing seagrasses to light and there's no opportunity for like in carbon sequestration during completely dark nights it, they may be less efficient at buffering ocean waters from acidification and stuff like that. So I think there's a huge potential to look at the effects of light pollution on seagrass and the marine ecosystems. And to be honest, there's not too much that's been done. There's there's a handful of studies that have been done on aquatic organisms, for sure. So many interesting findings. But there they're aside from sea turtle work and like, you know, some like fish attraction and fish interaction studies with dock mm-hmm. lighting and stuff like that, this is a relatively completely untouched subject by research. So I I think if I don't get around to it <laughs> I think somebody <laughs> needs to go out there and figure out how light pollution is affecting marine organisms. At least bottom up effects, top down effects community interactions all of the things someone needs to figure it out because it, it is has been touched very rarely
1: yes and i think partly it's because you know it's harder to connect with a plant um and so it's harder to to get data and that has been historically a big missing part in our understanding of light pollution. It's so interesting what you talk about in terms of storing carbon, um, because that's that's also come up a lot in the west of the US, where we have all these forest fires and basically tinderboxes. Um, and and um, Suzanne Simmer does a lot of work on the importance of mother trees um, being sort of the older uh, trees that actually can hold an ecosystem down um through the root system and that's fascinating work but that's so much of the carbon of the earth is actually stored in the root systems so it's really interesting what you talk about of seagrasses because basically we have these uh, plant ecosystems that are doing an amazing service of storing carbon um and helping to you know so that we don't have greenhouse gases escaping into our atmosphere so it's interesting when you relate light pollution back to these um seagrasses and also i i like what you're saying just in terms of what the seagrass has done to offer you perspective and dimension in your understanding which is that it, as a keystone species it may be directly impacted, but it's also going to be indirectly impacted by other species living off of these seagrass systems, which are being impacted by light pollution. And that really circles back to the whole point, which is that light pollution is, is impacting everything and everyone. And there's no really, we're, we're kind of lost the chicken or the egg because we don't, it's yep. starting to become very cascaded out into our ecosystem so that we don't really know where it's starting or beginning anymore.
2: Absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. I think everything is so intricately intertwined that it's, it's really hard to parse apart what's going on because everything has an effect on each other. So it's, it's complicated, yes. but I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. Yes. So
1: when now here we are, we're coming up on the end of the show. Are there any important points about your findings, whether it's on birds or, or, or plants the, uh, in your research, which is so uh, focused on light pollution um, that you want to tell our listeners, is there anything we didn't cover? Um,
2: hmm. Well, I think, you know, uh, some of this is, <laughs> some of the results sound really sad and are and bad, yeah. no- bad news, um, but what I think is really cool about light pollution is that, although we've learned to be so dependent on light light pollution is a very different problem than climate change because we can literally just turn off the lights so we have the ability (laughs) to change this there's we can invent we can innovate we can change our lighting and we can turn off the lights and we have the ability to actually fix this we can change the way that lighting is constructed so as sad as it is that there are all these negative effects of light pollution on wildlife and ecosystems and stuff like that, I think what's really cool about this subject is, is we have the ability to change it. And so I think people should feel inspired and motivated to kind of take charge and figure out more about, you know, like what is so harmful about different types of light and how can we solve it because you know, much like the, the climate crisis is a lot of people are really motivated to solve, you know, like carbon emissions and stuff like that. But like w- with light is is there are solutions, too. So I think, you know, just to leave listeners with like a little bit of hope and a little bit of optimism is that you have the ability to change this, you have the ability to turn out the light. So let's figure it out.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I recently had a thought about this because, um, I have been asked several times recently to give presentations on technology, quote unquote, to solve light pollution, which is really interesting because the problem is the technology. So we actually solved light pollution up until about 1875. And now we're so addicted to light that we're like, we actually need a technology. We have all the technology, it's lighting controls, it's perhaps experimenting with light color which is sort of where you come in in terms of understanding impacts versus amber versus cool light we do need that research but Mm -hmm. at the same time if you turn the lights off it doesn't really matter what color they are so um (laughs) (laughs) so we're we're obsessed with finding some technology to have our cake and eat it too when really we actually just need to turn the lights out there is no no new technology we could make Luminaire is a little bit um less reflective we can take the glass panels out we can make them dark sky compliant which means that the light source is actually parallel to the ground um so there's there's different techniques but the problem is the technology it's actually stopping and stop stop using the technology that would be the the factor that we need to do there's no new technology so um I think it's very important to keep reminding people that, yes, it's very depressing, but actually it's just about turning the lights off and finding ways to safely illuminate for human visibility that are far less impactful. Um, and I do think amber light is something that we can utilize, but I don't want to overutilize it, as you say. Exactly. So. Yes. Well, I just so appreciate the research that you are doing, the vivaciousness that you bring in your love of animals. It really comes through um, in your research. And um, yes, do you have any final comments before we close the show? And now I think you covered it. That was, that was amazing. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Um, I'm always happy to answer any other questions anybody has. So please reach out if you ever want to talk about birds or light pollution.
1: Thank you so much, it was a pleasure, and we'll, we'll definitely stay in touch. Thanks so much, have a good one. You too.
0: Go to keystonetech.com for dark sky friendly products. Eliminate unnecessary sky glow with the XFIT full cutoff off wall packs or the high performance LED area lights. Keystone can also provide you with HID products, transformers, sensors, and LED retrofit kits and fixtures. Everything for your customer's needs. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. Keystone. Light made easy.